All right, as we continue on with our Sunday gathering as a community, want to say hello. If you are new with us um, and this is your first time or one of your first few times, my name is Devin. I'm a staff elder here at the Commons LA. When we gather together here on Sundays, we are fundamentally gathering together because we believe that in Jesus, something radical and restructuring of human life is possible. That is that the, the presence of God is here. The kingdom has come that Jesus, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, has reordered the cosmos in a way that makes God accessible to human living and human community. And so we are dedicated and serious about learning to follow Jesus. Um, we have been in a series uh, starting 2023, specifically with regard to learning to pray. We want to learn to pray. And there are a few assumptions that we're bringing to the table with this. The first is that we need to be really honest about how difficult and how prayerless we can be. Uh, last week, we, we talked about, you can go back and you can listen to it on the website. We talked about how we kind of have absorbed this belief that prayer is actually an impossibility. That to be a human is just to be so distracted that prayer and focus is, is just generically impossible. But we talked last week about how that's, that's not the case and that we live in a particular moment and place in the Western world that has flooded us with distraction and formed us to constantly need to flee boredom and all these things that are just a part of the natural human experience that Jesus comes and teaches us to pray within. So we want to be really, really honest about how hard prayer is. But the second thing in learning to emphasize prayer as a people and learning to pray is that we want to embrace a conviction that we must learn to pray. We don't want to create some boxes on task lists to pray every day. We want to become the kind of people for whom prayer is natural. Does that make sense? So we don't just want to become people who pray. We want to become people of prayer. Therefore, we need a conviction that we need to pray. It's not an option, especially if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. So we want to stand on conviction, acknowledge our weakness. And third, we want to have the courage to move our lives around and disrupt the status quo in order to pursue learning to pray. Because none of us are going to stumble our way into becoming people of prayer. We're going to need to, to change our morning, which might mean we need to change when we go to bed, which might need to mean that we need to change the way that we live and, and deny ourselves things that distract us from lives of prayer and such. Um, before we dive into the scripture for this morning, um, we love reading, learning, growing, and a book that's been very helpful for our church community. It's called Celebration of Discipline. Um, it frames really, really helpful way, uh, ways to learn, to pray, and exercise spiritual disciplines. We have a few free copies on the back uh, resource table area there. would love to give that to you if you want to learn and grow in between um, and do some personal reading there. So, would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Whether you have it in a Bible with you, or you have it in the weekly handout that you have, uh, we have Luke 11, verses 5 through 10. We're going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible this morning. He, that is Jesus also said to them, the disciples, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning on the Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday, believing that Jesus Christ is among us. And so, Holy Spirit, we need your help. Would you make that truth that we cling to real to us this morning? In a room this size, I have no idea all the varied burdens and cares and pain and joys that we carry in here, but I know that you do. And so please be our guide. Please take your word and apply it into our particular circumstances. Meet us in our needs and lead the path of our steps as a collective community seeking to follow you and to be a little signpost and foretaste of the kingdom of heaven here on earth in Los Angeles. And would you please teach us to pray. Make us into people who pray. We lift these requests to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. So last week, we went through the Lord's Prayer, the first passage in Luke chapter 11, right before what we read this morning, and we, we asked the question, why pray? We learned about the why of prayer, and Jesus teaches that famous prayer to his disciples after they come to him and they ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And we have to put our, our kind of perspective on that sees they were, they were faithful Jewish worshipers of God. They, they were people for whom prayer was very normal. So it wasn't that they didn't know how to pray, the mechanics of prayer, but there was something attractive about Jesus' prayer life, his relationship to God, the way that he discerned and learned and followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so they come to him desiring that kind of life with God in prayer. And so we unpacked last week the why of prayer. Fundamentally, the why, we're not in control. We were created and desired by our Father in heaven. We get to serve His purposes in the world, and we need Him for things as simple as our daily sustenance like bread. Okay? That's why we pray. We, we were designed not just to list off our requests before God, but most essentially, and this was the thing to take away, we were created for communion with God. And prayer paves the path into the presence of God in the life with God. Today, we're, we're going to dive into a second element. Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. He dives into this parable, and it's, it's kind of an interesting parable. He's teaching us uh, the posture of prayer. He's teaching us the posture of prayer. And so he tells this parable to his disciples after teaching them the Lord's Prayer, what has been traditionally called the Lord's Prayer. Now, we have to, again, imagine the context. So Jesus sets the stage and he says, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight uh, and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Now, um, what we need to know about then was the culture of hospitality was one where if you failed to provide for someone who journeyed and you took in, immense shame covered you. It became the reputation that you were known for. And there are still cultures like that today. We don't much have that here. Um, some of us were more raised in a culture of hospitality than others. But you, you're responsible for providing for the needs of people around you. And so that drives them in this parable to go to their neighbor even at midnight. Now, no electricity. Lights were out probably five, six hours before then trying to sleep. It's the middle of the night. I know some of you are awake at like 2 a.m. and you're like, oh yeah, I just let them on in and make them whatever they need. 
No, this is, this is actually a family, a neighbor with a family who has children. The door is locked. They lived in predominantly one-bedroom homes. And so bang, bang, bang is like an alarm clock to all the kids. And so I just imagine the man saying, shh, stop. My kids are asleep. You're going to wake them up. And then it's going to take me 45 minutes to get them back to bed. And then the youngest one's going to wake them all up again. And I'm basically not going to get any more sleep tonight. Stop it. So that's some of the tensions that are going on. And, and the person who was hosting, the, the traveler, it's not like they could open their, their pantry and pull out a loaf of bread filled with preservatives that can last on your shelf mysteriously for two months without mold. <laughs> bread was a daily thing, and most of the time you got what you needed, you ate it, and then you went back to the market in the morning the next day. So this makes a lot of sense for their day. It's a quandary. It's difficult. It's a circumstance where there's really no ideal. And Jesus's point is that even though he's his friend, he will not get up for that reason. He will not meet the need simply because of his friendship. The reason that that man may get up is because of the shameless boldness of the person knocking. This internal posture that says, I know this is going to be deeply disruptive to my neighbor, but there is a greater need of this journeyer that I must meet. So I will disrupt the sleep of my neighbor and his family in order to meet that need. Whoa. Imagine in our day, we might, you know, have someone come, they're like, hey, I'm just in town. I had someone last week tell me the day of, like, hey, I'm just coming through town. And I was like, whoa, I'm not prepared to even go out to meet you for coffee, let alone to have you come and stay over, sleep somewhere, feed you. We don't even really have those senses of obligation to our friends, right? It's like, I would rather give you cash and let you find an Airbnb somewhere than let you get up all in my space. The shameless boldness that this person, Jesus says, caused him to overcome the will of his neighbor that was opposed to his desire. Isn't that interesting? Jesus always had interesting parables to try and illuminate these things that otherwise would remain under the surface. And as he's teaching his disciples how to pray, he's highlighting something here about the kind of posture we need in order to become the kinds of disciples or followers of Jesus or children of God the Father that would drive us to prayer. Here's Jesus' essential point about posture in prayer. Even in circumstances where human will is opposed and resistant to answering our requests can be overcome by bold requests that shirk the appearance of weakness and failure and shame. So Jesus is saying, even in the world, when you look horizontally around the way that the world works, shameless boldness gets you what you want sometimes, right? I mean, think about the last moment where you were really in need, you had... You needed someone to do something for you that was a little risky to ask. Like, it could go either way, and you were going to be really weak and dependent on their willingness to meet your request. Just think about an instance like that. Maybe um, you needed something from a neighbor like this. Maybe your landlord. You need them to come in and do a repair that might kind of be optional and they might put it on you, but you really need them to come and do it. Um, how often does asking yield our desires even towards people whose will is opposed to us? Oftentimes, simply all we need to do is ask. Um, what grumpier group of sticklers might we think of than an airline? <laughs> Customer service and airlines does not go together. I have a couple of examples uh, of shameless boldness that was needed to get what I wanted. Uh, anyone flown an airline that rhymes with Mirit? <laughs> <laughs> not the greatest experience, right? 
So a couple of months ago, my dad, I found out, sadly diagnosed with terminal cancer. I needed to book a flight out to Atlanta for the next week. Flights are not cheap right now. Therefore, I was willing to stoop to levels I might not otherwise be willing to go. And there's Spirit and Frontier and Allegiant down there willing, saying, we're cheap. Come on, you can make it. And so I booked a flight not knowing when I would actually need to be there. I was working out details with my family out on the East Coast in Georgia was where this flight was too. And long story short, I booked something that I was trying to cancel only two hours later. You know, airlines have the 24-hour policy where you can cancel and get it back for free, except if the flight is within seven days. I overlooked this exception. And when I go in and try and cancel it, you know, with the whole user experience on the back end, it said, oh, you'll get like $200 in airline credit rather than $1,000 for a flight. Whoa, what's going on here? Read the fine print, all of that. Start reaching out to the customer service. They say, oh yes, but our policy says, and I'm like, I know your policy says this, but my dad has terminal cancer. And in the moment, I was trying to figure out how I could get a flight to go down and see him, and now I'm realizing that I need to change. Can I get a little mercy, please? I'm not even disrupting this person. It's not like I'm waking them up from sleep with all their kids. It's just an employee on the other side of a chat line, right? Well. They were not willing to be helpful, and I said, I know how to be even more shameless, Twitter. And so I went on Twitter, and I added them. This is the shameless boldness of our day. If you want to throw someone under the bus, and you need them to do something, especially this ephemeral organization that pretends that it's a person, you throw an at on them, in Twitter, and so I, I took the whole chat and I like red circled it with, with markup online and was like, here's what I asked and here's what they said and here's what they said. And uh, they said, oh my gosh, we do not desire this experience to be had by anyone, which is a bold-faced lie. It's right there in their print. Like, we desire you to not get your money back in seven days. And so they said, DM us. And so I DM'd them and it all worked out eventually. I got what I wanted with quite a bit of shamelessness and a bit of boldness, right? Um, similar experience with an airline when a bunch of us were flying back in uh, from Mexico in October from where the global gathering for the Ethnos Network, our church is a part of a network called Ethnos, we were flying back. And I kid you not, I had the most outrageous experience I could have ever imagined and it's because I'm an entitled Westerner and in Mexico, in Guadalajara, we go up, there are five of us, six of us, seven of us, I forget how many, that are very clearly Americans. We flash our American passports, all of that stuff. And then uh, the two people at the front desk just decide not to help us and start calling the people from behind us. And we're like, huh, okay, maybe there are people that have like a flight that's really urgent behind us. And then they start calling people from our flight to come up and they start snickering to one another looking at us, and we're like, it, it clicks. They're just trying to straight up get us to miss our flight or something. And we start saying, no, we're on that flight. We need you to help us. What are you doing? They're smiling. Excuse me, sir, I have, I have other people to help. And, you know, not until we pull out the phones with shameless boldness to say, this will be posted online if you do not help us right now. Were they willing to help us? It was a crazy experience. But we felt awkward. It feels really weird to like force your will on someone to say like, I am videotaping your behavior right now. <laughs> Even in our world, shameless boldness, asking for what you desire, can sometimes get people whose will is opposed to you to do what you want. Now the lesson as children of God, followers of Jesus, is to say, if that even works in the world where another human being with some authority or sub substance that we need, if it works when their will is opposed to us, how much more will that kind of bold shamelessness work before our Father in heaven who loves us and is for us. 
To learn to pray, Jesus tells us to cultivate shameless boldness before our Father in heaven because he loves us. He desires us. He wants our participation in the world facilitating life with him, that we would draw near to him in our needs. And yet Jesus knows something about what it means to be human in a fallen world. We are ensnared by shame and fear. And so even in you hearing me say that, like God loves you. He wants you to make your request known to him. We're going to get in the moment and say, God, I really want a spouse. God, I really need a grade to get into this grad school. Or, or God, I, I really need to not be involved in this next round of layoffs at the company. There are moments where we, even ourselves, are crippled by shame or fear, and we want to take up control for our own lives, which the world is happy to tell us is good enough. And it undermines us becoming people who pray, people of prayer. So I'm going to highlight a couple of the postures that we see in Jesus' parable as critical to shameless boldness, as critical to the kind of posture that we need before God. First one, posture number one, to learn to pray, we must obey. We must have the posture with the, of the intent to obey Jesus' teachings. Now, it's when I really think about it, when we really think about it, it should sound crazy that we need to say out loud that the one who we call Lord and Master, we need to remember that we're actually supposed to, to follow him, to really follow him, to, to take him seriously in what he says. But in the Western church, we have a gospel that tells us you're so forgiven of everything and will be forgiven forevermore that you can really do whatever you want and God has to forgive you. Therefore, not obeying God doesn't matter all that much for this life. And so, maybe you could save it for later. But we see in the parable something really, really surprising. The, the, the thing that's surprising is the friend wakes up his neighbor's whole family for a surprise visitor. What does that tell us about the friend? Um, the friend had firm conviction that he must extend hospitality to a traveler. So much so that on the scales of moral decision-making and ethics, if you're a philosophy major, the need of a traveler outweighed the need for sleep of a family next door. You see that? There's a moral decision-making thing that's going on in this person that says, I will go and disrupt somebody else and put the burden of this traveler on the shoulders along with me of my neighbor. The reason this is important is because the minute we try and take Jesus seriously at his word as something that can be lived out in 21st century Los Angeles and not just an antiquated set of teachings from first century Nazareth, is it puts you in a posture of the need for dependent discernment about how it should work out in your life. You will start to pray when you realize, I need to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus said, deny yourself. Jesus said, give to all who beg from you. Jesus said, um, whoever does not forsake his possessions cannot follow me. We talked a little bit about that one last week. We need to have such a disconnect from our stuff that it even is expendable if we want to follow Jesus. If we want to really read the Gospels in the New Testament with seriousness, to say, Jesus, you're real, you're here. The intent to obey him at his word will necessitate a posture of dependent prayer in our closets. 
Because we will constantly run into situations where we do not know what to do. We won't ever know how to pray if we aren't put in the hard position of obeying Jesus in a world opposed to his ways, in the complexity of a world ruled by the tyranny of death and the enemy. We need to also be willing and able to discern when to take needs that are around us and place them not just on our shoulders, but on the shoulders of people next to us, like this neighbor. <laughs> I mean, we're so individualistic, we have a hard time taking up responsibility ourselves to say, your need is my need, let alone your need is my brother's need too. But this is the kind of vision that scripture paints for the people of God that we would have this resolve to say it should not be so. So we, we will need to pray with boldness when we take seriously Jesus' call to love our neighbors as ourselves. Hopefully you start to feel some of the tension. Okay, well then, what about the stuff that I need to do in my own life? This week... Someone had need around me, and I had the moment where I said in, to myself, do I serve this person, or do I do what was scheduled? And I sensed I need to do, the need is significant enough that I need to do what is needed rather than what is scheduled. And in that moment of, of tension, I said, Lord, you're going to need to come through for me in this area over here, because I can't do that anymore. In God's kindness, I got to experience living it out and just living, living out the passage before. And I could say, God is faithful to meet us there. But prayerful dependence is required. So we need, we need to have the posture of the intent to obey. It forces us into places of boldness to say, I must stand here with this person because Jesus has called me to love my neighbor as myself or to honor God in a difficult situation where I'm going to be scorned for it. Oh God, please, I need you to be the one who defends my reputation in the eyes of the people who are going to talk about this and scorn me for following you. If we would be committed to loving God and loving our neighbors in a world flooded with self-centeredness, we must view the teachings of Jesus as oxygen for our souls that bring us life, not burdens on our backs that make us sink deeper into death. Let's say that again. If we would have the posture of intending to obey Jesus at his word, committed to loving God and loving our neighbors in a world flooded with self-centeredness, we must view the teachings of Jesus as oxygen for our souls that bring us life, not burdens on our backs that make us sink into death. As I talk about intending to obey Jesus, what I know is going on in you because it's going on in me and I've been in among you long enough to know it is hard to follow Jesus. We feel like failures all the time. And in our area, this part of West Los Angeles, we are used to feeling very successful all of the time or at least faking it. But Jesus didn't just stack up commands in order to push us down. He's actually teaching us the ways of heaven and his kingdom and the with God life. As we learn to obey Jesus, we're reprogrammed to live off of real oxygen. So we embrace the posture of obedience and we learn to pray with boldness. Posture number two, to learn to pray we must defy the world in reliance on God. This is to say, we need to believe and embrace that just because the world looks a certain way does not make it inevitable. The New Testament puts it this way, with God all things are possible. 
we fail to pray because we don't actually think Jesus is reigning over our world of death and decay. We fail to pray because we don't actually think Jesus is reigning over our world of death and decay. And good news this morning, a simple reminder, he is reigning. And we are his, and he has given us in some mysterious way his authority. We are called priests and kings swept up into the throne room of heaven on earth. What kind of audacity should we have? We should be pretty audacious. We, our imagination shouldn't be held captive by the mere uh, horizontal lives and the resources that we have at our disposal. That's what Paul actually says in, in 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth, they were taking each other to court in order to get from one another what they felt they had been defrauded. So imagine someone over here and someone over there become enemies. Business deal gone bad. We're going to start a great Christian business. It's going to be so Jesus-y. And there's betrayal. And it stinks. And there's rage. And then you sue each other. Paul says... Why would you take each other to court out in the world and not just judge for yourselves? Secondly, don't you know everything is yours? And there's not some mysterious Greek that's hard to translate behind that. All things are yours because all things are Jesus's. So, why would you sue each other? Why would you not rather be defrauded? It's what he says. If you follow Jesus, the resources that you have at your disposal are infinite. If it doesn't exist yet, the Spirit can make a miracle occur and take two fishes and loaves and feed thousands. But we, we believe the world is so powerful, we don't even try and push back against it. Or if we do, and we experience the backlash, we learn our lesson quick. The world tells us to be radically centered on ourselves, but we need to learn to lament that the world is the way it is. Not accept. When we get low enough in lament over poverty, over cancer, over racism, over greed, over the ways that the church is messed up, when we get low enough, we start to see the gap between who God is, what he says about what is going to happen ultimately, and where we are, and fire starts to get kindled in our bellies to say it should not be this way. Jesus, you are reigning, and this world is dying. Do something. One author said, intercessory prayer is spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised. Intercessory prayer that is, praying that things would change in our world is spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised. When there's injustice in the world and we feel compelled in our bones to go out and march to see that justice uh, achieved, we need to remember that every day we are called as followers of Jesus to be praying on our knees that injustice and evil and darkness would be pushed back by the King of Light. So, we need some shamelessness to say, it should not be this way. But the minute we say that, we feel like idiots, right? 
we feel like, well, of course this is the way the world is. We feel like people will hear us and say, oh, there's a Christian who's living in fantasy land, especially in our very intellectual environment where we do research and prove things. And the next study will disrupt all the stuff the last study had told us. Did you know that in the 1950s, I saw this, uh, this image in a scientific American journal from the 1950s. They said, the best way to dispose of your used motor oil, dig a hole in the backyard, dump it down, put the grass back over the top, and let that oil go back to where it's from. That's what science was telling us to do with our used motor oil, a toxin that taints fresh water and can never be reabsorbed back in, in the 1950s. So, I want to pull out some of the pins and the assumptions that say, although science is gl a glorious gift from God, that there is order and structure that can be discovered in the world, that real knowledge, just as, as Haley read during our liturgical prayer, that things are the way they are because God has granted uh, that we could find out, right? That, that science is a gift. But scientism is the belief that science is the thing that will save us, which is really a belief in us because we're the ones who are operating it. And prayer renounces that, is able to receive God's good gifts, and yet say, the truest things are the things we can't see. And I'm willing to walk into a workplace, and when tragedy strikes, I lament and grieve and strive with them, but I'm able to still even say, I follow Jesus, and, and it might sound crazy to you, but I've seen him work in response to us asking. Can we ask him to work? That's what Jesus says, putting it into practice. Prayer as asking and seeking and knocking. What do we do with this shameless boldness to say, God, it shouldn't be so. We are going to ask you to move. He, he tells us something fascinating about the way the universe works. Did you catch how Jesus phrases this? I tell you, ask, and it will be, open, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So we take Jesus' commands and we view them as burdens rather than oxygen. The other thing is we take Jesus' teachings oftentimes and, and we relativize them back to, you know, they were smart back in the first century. Now, not so much. It's pretty naive to actually take Jesus at his plain words, but Dallas Willard, an author that many of us in our community have learned to love, said this, Jesus is the smartest man who has ever lived. Did you know that? Jesus is the smartest man who has ever lived. Sit with that for a second. We think of Jesus as wise. We think of him as morally good. But if we're honest, is smart one of the things that comes to mind when we think about Jesus? I mean, what really is smart? Smart is the capacity to know and understand how things work and to live in accordance with how those things work. Who knew more about how the control center of the universe works than the one who spoke it into being? So when Jesus says, everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks will have it opened to them. It's true. That doesn't mean there's, some, there's not some waiting between. But Jesus is telling us something essential about how the universe operates with these two verses. With the posture of shameless boldness, you ask, you seek, you knock. The Father hears, answers, and provides. If we want to become people of prayer, if we want to learn to pray, 
hopefully what we are seeing and experiencing in our hearts, minds, and souls right now is realizing that there are what Scripture calls strongholds that have captured our imaginations and contained us to certain ways of living that actually make praying impossible. We need to hear the words of Jesus with an openness to the Spirit of Jesus, giving us simple trust to do what He invites us to and experience the wisdom of God. If we're honest, rather than ask and seek and knock, we could say that we order and Google and tweet. But, how does this teaching of Jesus help us learn to pray? What does asking tell us about how prayer works? How it really works? This is not uh, rhetorical. What does is, what is the need to ask tell us about how prayer works? What do you think? And we're going we're gonna to pray after this. So, this will be imminently practical to all of us. What does it tell us about what is going on in prayer that we must ask? Can't assume? It affects the outcome. Yeah. I used to kind of believe God's so sovereign, my prayer doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But in his sovereignty, he uses my participation to bring about his aims. Yeah. What else? What else does asking tell us about how prayer works? That reliance on God is rewarded. Yeah. Reliance on God is rewarded. Like God knows that the best place for us to be, period, is near Him. And in our asking, He draws us near and He answers. He provides. Oh, you're good. We got plenty of seats. <laughs> yeah, asking tells us that God desires to meet our needs, our, even our desires, with the, with the affirmative. But He wants to draw us into participation. There's a kind of dignifying our desires that occurs when they are expressed to someone else. The asking dignifies the asker when the provider says, yes. You have more dignity than to provide for yourself. What does it tell us about the kind of person God is? What does it tell us about the kind of person that God is? Yeah. He's patient. He can wait. But he's waiting for us to participate. Mm -hmm. He wants us to bring our needs to him. Mm -hmm. Yes. He desires us to bring our needs to him. Tells us that there's a kind of authentic, honest need that God allows in our lives so that we would get what we most need, of course, which is Him. Your need to ask is an invitation to get really near to God in communion. Yeah. What about seek? What does seeking tell us about how prayer works? Seeking, tell us about how prayer works. It takes, effort. it takes effort, yes, from the profoundly wise woman in the front. <laughs> what else? Initiative. Initiative, yes. There's almost this, this unknown. How many people seek because they already know where something is? No. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's an acknowledgement in prayer. We don't even know where the thing we long for lies. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely requires courage. Courage, because when you're seeking, you don't know what the outcome's going to be. You might be corrected in the process of the seeking. Think about seeking God's will. What's fundamental to, to that assumption is that it's not your will. There's surrender involved in seeking. So I wonder if as we pray, we could open ourselves to the point of saying, not my will be done, but your will be done. Would you help us as we seek to know your will with our lives? Would you show us the way? Would you give us what we need? Yeah, God is the kind of person who desires to be sought out in love. I've heard one person articulate it. God is humble. He doesn't force himself on us. He just kind of he sits over here, he makes the way clear, and then he lets people press their way towards him in earnestness. Um, yeah, it even invites us to cultivate love for God that desires him. I think back on my early days as a Christian, it was almost, I was almost told, do not express love for God because it's not you who love God, it's God who loves you. Which, there's an element of truth to that. But if you, if you follow Jesus, cultivating love for him is so important and it's where joy lies in your walk with him. Yeah, what about knocking? What does knocking tell us about how prayer works? Summoning. Summoning. Mm-hmm. Waiting. Think about the experience of knocking. It's almost shocking when you, you knock, bam, doors open. Whoa, gosh, I didn't expect that. Were you waiting right behind the door on the other side? <laughs> A little creepy. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a door. It's made for opening. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's right. That's right. Pushing the issue. Did you know do you know what Israel, the name for God's people? Do you know what Israel means? one who struggles with God, one who wrestles with God. From the very beginning, God has created a people and himself named a people. You are those who wrestle with me. God likes wrestling. <laughs> Sport of preference. But don't, I mean, let's be, let's be honest. Don't you feel uncomfortable with that thought? I kind of feel like, that's really presumptuous that I could, I, God could communicate something or orchestrate something in my life and rather than me humbly, yes, God, yes, God, say, no, God, no. But remember, we live in a world that death and sin have reigned until the Lord of life came and defeated them and now he's pushing that kingdom forward and we live in between and prayer is our engaging with that reality, communing with God and seeking to transform our surroundings. So, what kind of person is God if he desires we knock? Desires to be sought out. Yeah. Desires to be sought out. Acknowledged. He's relational. He's relational. Yeah. There's a, there's a us initiating and there's a him responding and you almost get this image of either provision like in the parable or welcoming in. Come. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I almost get this image too of if there, there are doors around us, like life often feels as though it has many doors, many options, many alternatives. We are, we are pro you probably got here because you had some plans. You had some paths before you. And a lot of times it feels like uh, we don't know which one to take. This communicates to us that as we seek and, and ask and knock, that God is the one who can open doors of possibility that you couldn't have planned and controlled on your own. The way that Revelation 3 sums it up says that Jesus is the one who can open doors no man can shut and shut doors no man can open. Um, I think about someone in our community who had this conviction that they, uh, although they're going to school, needed to stay a part of this community, desired to stay a part of this church, desired to keep their job and go to school and did not know how that was going to be possible because according to what it looked like the arrangement was in their life, could not hold all three of those things together. Um, and God provided. Person didn't have a mode of transportation. God provided a car, made it possible. That's the kind of opening that they could not open on their own. And I wonder if we sense these things that feel like impossibilities, that simply by knocking, God can open doors we didn't even know were possible. So I want to read what happens when a group, a community, a nation of people pray. They ask, they seek, they knock, they have shameless boldness to see how God actually breaks in in history. Many of you, especially if you like Christopher Nolan as a director, saw Dunkirk. Anybody see Dunkirk? Yes. Amazing movie. Did you know something essential was left out of the movie? I'll tell you. One of the most dramatic examples of the power of united intercession in modern times took place in May 1940 as the Second World War was entering its darkest and most dangerous chapter. The Allied forces were trapped by the advancing Nazi forces with their backs to the sea at Dunkirk. The German high command had announced that its troops were proceeding to annihilate the British army. Winston Churchill was preparing to admit an unprecedented military catastrophe, and Allied generals were secretly anticipating the loss of a third of a million soldiers. In utter despair, King George VI took to the airwaves on Thursday, May 23, 1940, calling the people of Great Britain to a national day of prayer the following Sunday. Old black and white photographs show somber crowds that Sunday, waiting to get into cathedrals, churches, and chapels, an entire nation united in seeking God for national deliverance. The very next day, a flotilla of some 860 vessels, mostly civilian craft, set out to cross the English Channel in a desperate ramshackle attempt to rescue besieged Allied soldiers. Churchill hoped that as many as 30,000 or 10% of the army would be rescued. By the time the ships reached France, they were highly vulnerable to aerial attack. So too was the Allied army amassed like a sitting target on the beach at Dunkirk. But unseasonable storms blew up, battering the European mainland so violently that the Luftwaffe, that is the Air Force of Germany, in that region was grounded and unable to attack. Meanwhile, Hitler had inexplicably ordered his ground forces to halt. For three days, they didn't move. His generals were furious, the military and military historians to this day are still baffled by this clear tactical error. And so with the Luftwaffe grounded for an unexpected storm and the German army restrained by its own commander, the Dunkirk evacuations were allowed to proceed largely undisrupted until the Luftwaffe resumed their attacks on May, 9, on May 29th. On Wednesday, three days after the National Day of Prayer and in sharp contrast to the storms of the previous day, an extraordinary calm descended on the English Channel, precisely the benign con conditions that the overloaded boats now needed as they sailed back to England. 
By the time that the German army finally renewed its attack, more than 338,000 men had been rescued, 10 times the expected number, including 140,000 French, Belgian, Dutch, and Polish soldiers. No wonder the events on those remarkable days became known as the miracle of Dunkirk. In his famous speech to Parliament on June 4th, 1940, Churchill heralded a miracle of deliverance. A second day of prayer was called to thank God for delivering them, confounding the plans of the enemy, and redirecting the entire trajectory of the Second World War. Important note, we must be careful indeed about claiming God's partisan support or overt blessing in any theater of war. But it is without doubt that a series of critical elements in the success of the Dunkirk evacuations lay so far beyond the hand of the Allied powers that they must either be labeled as luck on a quite extraordinary scale or as answers to the unprecedented concerted prayers of an entire nation that ascended to heaven on the day that it all began. Now that gets left out of a movie because it's not very entertaining. We would much rather hear planes and peril and think that human achievement in, against all odds is what's really exciting. But God answered and heard them. When the people of God pray together, especially in the church. Here's something to bank on. God is more prone to answer. That kind of disrupts us as well, right? Well, if I pray it, it's the same as if everyone prays it. But we see time and time again, God is faithful to answer his people when they are united in need whether it's the need of one or the need of the many. We are in this together. We're committed to this. We want to emphasize learning to pray, honestly acknowledging it's hard, it's not easy. Okay? But because of the gospel, because we are united to Jesus, where we go, he goes, where he goes, we go, he's trustworthy. He will lead us. And as we get to take the Lord's Supper now, I'm going to invite the band to come up. We have the tangible reminder in the broken bread and the cup. Let me get out of your way. Of the extent to which God went to assure us that the answers to our prayer, that the longings of our heart, We'll find their answer in Jesus. Every promise of God finds its yes in Jesus. And before you, in broken bread and in the cup, you have God's affirmation. It will be done. Prayer is our participation into that. This is the assurance. Every prayer will be answered in God's will. Okay? So I'm going to read our, our prayer over the Lord's Supper. This was written thousands of years ago by the first disciples of Jesus, some of the first, and we want to participate in our tradition, in our history, and the riches of it. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper corporately, all together, in between uh, the songs. The band will lead us in the actual taking of it, but during the first song, come up and grab it. Take some bread, break it off, dip it in the cup. You can go to the prayer team. They would love to pray over you as we experience being immersed in prayer. Being prayed for is oftentimes a scary foreign experience, but it opens us up into God's wisdom and goodness to meet us and answer our prayers there. We have prayer rugs in the back and in the front here for you to kneel and just assume a posture that lets your body lead your soul into humility before our good God and creator. So pray with me as I read this aloud and we take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for the sacraments as precious gifts that uniquely communicate your presence among us. As we participate in the Lord's Supper with your church around the world today, we remember the Lord Jesus in both the cup and the bread. First, concerning the cup, we thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of 
the Davidic Messiah whom you made known to us through Jesus, who is the Christ. To you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus the Christ. To you be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills as wheat and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom, for yours is the glory and the power forever through Jesus Christ.